invite you to turn with me in the scriptures. First of all, to Leviticus 24. Leviticus chapter 24. I want to read the verses 10 through to the end of verse 23. Leviticus chapter 24. Beginning to read at verse 10. This is the word of God. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed in the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who was cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who was born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make a good animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, <coughs> so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for the one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Would you then turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And there I want to read the first ten verses. Philippians chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1 through to the end of verse 10. And here we continue to hear God's word. Therefore, if there is, is, there, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Then I invite you to turn with me in the back of your center hymnal to Lord's Day 36. Lord's Day 36, question and answer 99 and 100. You'll find that on page 890, page 890 in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnal. And I remind you that this is your confession of faith, just as it is mine. And so the question is, what, congregation, what is God's will for us in the third commandment? That we neither blaspheme nor misuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. In summary, we must use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe, so that we may properly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in everything we do and say. Is blasphemy of God's name by swearing and cursing really such a serious sin that God is angry also with those who do not do all they can to help prevent and forbid it? Yes, indeed. No sin is greater or provoked God's wrath more than blaspheming his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. Thus far the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we found it in the creeds and confessions of the church. May God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading and the preaching of his word again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here with me this afternoon. I can remember from my childhood days a little song or a jingle that joyfully echoed the words day by day in every way the world is becoming better and better day by day in every way the world is becoming better and better and as a youngster life was good and I was certain that those words were true but as I grew and as I matured I was no longer convinced instead of seeing our world getting better and better instead I saw our world becoming worse Perhaps materially, things have improved. As I look back in the days of my childhood, how my parents struggled to keep a large family fed, and as I compare that to most of us today, I can say every day things are getting better and better. The resources that I have today, when compared to the resources my parents had, I can say every day things are getting better. But as I matured, I began to see the ever-increasing moral decay of the world around me. Spiritually and morally, I do not hesitate to say that at least our land and probably our world is bankrupt. Our nation spiritually is bankrupt. And I see our world becoming ever more secular. And secular, of course, is the opposite of sacred. Oh, no doubt my my perception of the world, seeing it through my teenage eyes, would change over the years, but there can be no mistake that the world of then and the world of now are so very different. And the question I want to raise with this afternoon with you is, was that little ditty, was that correct? Is our world getting better and better as time goes on? Perhaps it is. Consider this with me. As a youngster, again, I had a part-time job pumping gas. And I can remember that the proprietor in that gas station, had, he had a sign hanging on his wall in the shop which simply read, 
profanity forbidden. And in those days, such signs were not unusual. Shops, places of businesses, even garages and gas stations had warnings on the wall telling the customers to mind their language. Today, those signs have disappeared. Why is that? Could it be that our modern generation has outgrown that sinful and senseless, senseless misuse of God's name? Could it indeed be true that the world is getting better and better and that therefore those warning signs are no longer necessary? Has modern education given man a better use of vocabulary so that men and women today can express themselves without using such profanity? Could it be that the world every day is getting better and better? And could it be true that a new and profound reverence for the holy name of God has gripped the heart of our nation? We know better. A walk down a city street the reading of a modern novel, going to see a movie, a turning on of the radio or a TV set, the rental of a DVD movie, a visit to a sports arena, a simple walk across a schoolyard, an observance of even young children in their play shocks us back to reality. Profanity, swearing and cursing flows freely from the lips of men, women, and even children, even some very young children. Some time ago in another city, I assisted an elderly man in a state of emergency. I saw the man slightly in front of me collapse on the street, clutching at his heart, and I needed to go and help him. And in my urgency and my haste to get him, I slightly inconvenienced a young child of about six as I brushed past him and knocked him off balance. And the child became so incensed that he cursed me out with words that I was not even familiar with. He knew God's name. That was obvious, by the way. He cursed me in God's name. But obviously he did not know God. Obviously, the youngster had not been taught the law of God. He had not even been taught common courtesy or good manners. So now this afternoon, the catechism calls us to consider the proper use and the misuse of the name of the Lord. And, and we want to discover that the use, the use of God's name is a great privilege, but it's also a very serious matter. The taking of God's name upon one's lips is not something that God takes lightly. And the abusing of his name is not something that he will ignore or allow to go unpunished. We heard the catechism tell us, no sin is greater, no sin provoked God's anger more than the blaspheming of his name. And that is why, that is why, as we read in Leviticus 24, he commanded it to be punished with death. No greater sin than a violation of this command. This com- imagine that. Imagine that with me for a moment. Think about that. And initially, when we read that, it probably surprised us somewhat to hear God say that there is no sin greater than to blaspheme his name. And what kind of startles us is, is not all sin equally serious? Is not the breaking of any commandment an equally serious transgression of God's holy law? And now it seems that one sin is greater than another. And if that's true, if some sins are more serious than others, if that's true, then in our human minds, 
There are sins much more serious than using God's name profanely. For example, the seventh commandment, committing adultery. That's serious business. Stealing from our neighbor, perhaps. But cursing? Well, it's bad etiquette, but it's really not that big a deal, is it? And yet the catechism insists there is no greater sin. By phrasing the question and answer as it does, the catechism wants to instill in us at the very outset that this commandment is serious business, and so we need to understand well what is under consideration here. We should never be afraid of using the Lord's name. In fact, we may and we must freely call upon the name of the Lord, but we must use great care that we always and only do so in the proper manner, that is, with fear and reverence and awe. And I administer God's word to you this afternoon following the reading of the catechism, using as my theme, reverencing the name of the Lord. Reverencing the name of the Lord. We want to examine, first of all, the revelation, the revealing of God's name. We then want to consider the recognition of God's name. And then finally, we want to examine the abuse of God's name. So reverencing the holy name of the Lord, revelation of his name, and the recognition of his name, and the abuse of his name. Congregation, in trying to understand this commandment, it is necessary, first of all, to explain the meaning of a name. You see, a name is much more than just a distinguishing mark. It's more than an identification tag. A person's name identifies not only who a person is, but it also tells us what he is or does. A name, in fact, is a reputation. I remember well that as my teenage children were leaving the house on a Saturday evening, I would often say to them, remember whose name, uh, who, remember who you, whose you are and whose name you bear. Remember whose you are and remember whose name you bear. And by that I meant their name was Zastra and their name was Christian. And so then I reminded them that wherever they went, whatever they did, they bore my name and Christ's name. And if they behaved badly or immorally, damage was done both to my reputation and much worse, the cause of Christ was done harm and injury. A name is something by which a person is known. And it is in that sense that the Bible speaks of men of renown. Genesis 5, for instance, speaks of the heroes of old, men of name and reputation, the stuff that legends are made of. But these names and their reputations in that part of Scripture, they were not always spoken of positively. Even among the heroes of old recorded in Scripture, we find men who were violent and merciless and fierce. We find in Scripture men whose names identify them as strong, valiant, and faithful, But we receive in Scripture also names of men whose reputations were tarnished and their names identified them as such. (laughs) The reputation of men and women were identified by their name. For example, if I speak to you of Abraham and or of Ahab, you immediately recognize the distinction between these two men. And we understand, of course, that a man's name or reputation can be tarnished by his own conduct, but tragically, a man's good name and reputation can also be ruined by the evil gossip and slander of another. 
A man's reputation can first of all be ruined by his own sin or by his own mistakes in judgment. Very often a sin is committed, a sin of grave error in judgment is made, and a man's reputation or a woman's reputation is affected forever. But most often a man's good name and reputation is ruined by the evil tongue of another. The Bible tells us that a good name is better than riches or wealth, and I think it's correct to say that all people take at least some interest in their own name and their reputation. No one likes to have their name or reputation maligned, and when a person's name is attacked, the person himself has been attacked. We need to understand that. And it is now in that context that we need to understand the seriousness of violating this commandment. You see, as we have said, a person's name does more than simply identify the person. The name also identifies who or what the person is. And so when the Bible speaks of the name of God, it does so in the sense of his revelation. God has revealed himself and he has made known his being and his virtues by his holy name. The name of God is in all the works of his hands. God's name comes to expression in creation, in history, and above all, in the works of salvation, which God has revealed in Jesus Christ. And through this revelation, God reveals to us his reputation and his attributes, his characteristics. It is God's name that reveals what he is to us. People thought it may all sound a bit confusing, but continue to follow with me for the, I believe, the concept to be urgent. You see, we are, we are sinful, fallen creatures. And as a result of sin, our hearts and minds have become clouded in darkness. And on our own, we could never have come to rightly know God. But it pleased God to reveal himself to us in a name. And through that name, God made it possible for fallen creatures to enter into his sanctuary and then to address him as our God or my God. And that name, of course, is Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, God makes himself known to us and he enters into fellowship with us as the God of all grace. And in that name, Jesus, we come to know the name of God as meaning the one who forgives all our transgressions and who clothes clothes us with everlasting righteousness. But there's more here. Because God's name reveals who and what he is, therefore, God's name is holy. God's name is holy because God himself is holy. But how must we understand that? What does that mean? Well, first of all, God's holiness is the virtue according to which he is the incomparable one. He is the one, the only true God, and he is separated by an unbridgeable gap from anything that is, that is creaturely or created. This definition of God's holiness implies, of course, that he is ethically perfect and spotlessly pure, far removed from any sin. In him there's only light and there is no darkness at all. You see, God is holy in an altogether unique sense. God's holiness means that he is by himself in the class unique only to himself. In the prophecies of Isaiah, 
he's revealed to us as the Holy One of Israel or simply as the, the Holy One. Holiness is God's supreme virtue. And now it is in this unique holiness of God that we see the seriousness of breaking this commandment. You see, his name is separate from and stands infinitely above all and any other name. It's not a class name, and God's name is not common. God's name is not ordinary. It is unique. It's in a class all by itself. God's name is holy, and it identifies his holiness, and it is now this awesome holiness of the name of God that is the basic principle of this third commandment. In this commandment, God comes to us. He comes to you and to me, and he says, as it were, I am the Lord your God. I am your Redeemer. I have sent my Son to reveal my name to you in order that you might come to know me, in order that you could speak to me and about me, and in order that you could and would glorify me in your heart and with your life. My name, says God, my name is so special, so holy, so unique, that I will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. And so the sin then identified in this commandment is the sin of profaning God's name. But now we need to carefully define in the context of what we've just learned what it means to use profanity. Briefly defined to profane something is to take something that is uncommon and make it common. It is to take something that is holy and make it unholy. It is to take something that is sacred and make it secular or profane. In this case, it is to take the uncommon name of God and to make it common, or if you will, it is to take away the uniqueness of God's holy name. It is to take his holy name and to use it in an unholy way. And people of God, we need to understand this. The biblical truth and the principle is crucial to properly understanding this commandment. You see, when we take his sacred name and use it in a secular way to profane God's name is to use his name in such a way that the distinction between God's holy name and all other names is erased. And then God's name becomes common, no different from any other creaturely names. Let me bring it a little closer to home. I hardly need to define to you the way that the world and sometimes even Christians use God's name illegitimately. God's name is profaned when it is not used reverently. But, but, but profaning God's name can be as simple as using his name thoughtlessly, meaning that when it is used, it, it doesn't fill us with holy reverence. We can do that even in our prayers when they are offered thoughtlessly. I have heard untold prayers where God's name was used so carelessly, so flippantly, that I do not hesitate to say that the prayer was actually a profaning of God's name. It can even be, as the Catechism points out, God's name can be misused even through silence, it says. For example, if I am at a meeting where my name was to be used in a positive way, 
but it is intentionally omitted, then I am offended. So too for God. When we do not speak his name when it is called for, then God is offended by our silence and his name has been profaned. Then there is yet the the most abominable practice of profanity known as cursing or swearing. It is to use the name of the Lord as a vehicle (coughs) for expressing all kinds of different emotions. Someone becomes bitter, angry, malicious, or drunk, and the name of God is used profanely. Not even the name of an enemy or a rival is used in the same way, certainly not someone who is loved. And obviously then, when God's name is used to swear or to curse, there is no love for God. There is, in fact, hatred, and God's name is abused and profaned. The Bible acknowledges that when it says, the carnal mind is at enmity with God. People God, you are you beginning to see what the Lord really demands of us here? He does not only ask that we refrain from using his name in vain, but he also insists that we only use his name aright or rightly. We have much to learn in this regard. His name must be at the very center of all of our life and being, and that is impossible for us. Only one person has done this, our Lord Jesus Christ. Did we not hear him say in his high priestly prayer, Father, Father, he says, I have glorified thy name on earth. And Christ fully and perfectly exemplified and amplified the glory of God's name, even in his suffering and trials when he said, not my will, but may thy will be done. Christ never used his Father's name lightly or in vain. In fact, he rightly confessed it before men and before his Father, and he is our Savior and our example, and therefore as New Testament church, we too are called to follow his example and refrain from profaning the name of God either by our speaking or by our silence. <coughs> People about earlier I pointed out that there is no sin greater or more provoking to God than to profane his name, and if we accept that as being a biblical truth, then it has got to deeply trouble us that in our age there is no sin that is more widespread, more and more common than the profaning of God's name. When we read the passage from Leviticus, we get the impression that at that time the sin was still uncommon or rare. The people in the camp were embarrassed by it. They really didn't know what to do about it. And they went to God and they asked. They locked him up until they knew what the Lord's will was. And they went to God and they asked. And the answer was succinct and testifying and terrifying. For you and for the stranger, the punishment is the same. Death to you and to the stranger. The punishment, my dear people of God, think about that with me. The sin of this young man is so very common today. One cannot watch a movie or watch television without constantly being assaulted by God's name being profaned. To irreverently interject God's holy name into every other sentence or conversation has simply become a way of speaking. It's become a habit. And yet God is so offended by the sin that he insists upon the death penalty. But the catechism goes on to point out that more is required of it than to refrain from profaning his name. 
we read that we may not even be silent bystanders in the face of the widespread profanity. In other words, God lays it upon us to prevent and to forbid cursing as much as lies within our ability to do so. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps those shopkeepers of a bygone age, perhaps they had understood that and therefore they forbade such conduct in their establishments. But what about us today? If you've ever tried to correct someone in this matter, we must admit that it's not easy. Sometimes people react in an embarrassing way, apologizing. They'll say, I'm sorry, I didn't know that it offended you. Never dawned on them that it was not so much you, but that God who was offended. That thought doesn't enter into their minds, for they know not God. Others, when confronted, will simply shrug it off by saying, I meant nothing with it. Really, it's just a habit. Or as often as not, your admonition will earn you another defiant curse telling you to mind your own bleep, bleep, bleep business. The man on the street looks at you as if you have violated one of his basic rights when you rebuke him for his language. He has no concept and he has even less interest in God's right to have his name reverenced. The writers of fiction make a healthy profit by putting the vocabulary of the gutter into the mouths of their characters. The public speaker desecrates the rostrum with language that is not only in poor taste, but even profane. The newspaper now sprinkles its articles with words that were formerly left in blank spaces. Television, videos, movies are so riddled with profanity that for the most part, they are not an acceptable means of entertainment for the Christian. People of God, the world has wandered so far from God that it has forgotten how to speak. The world no longer knows how to communicate without profaning God's name, and we may not take part in that, either by participating or standing idly by. The next time you watch a video that misuses the name of God, stop for a moment to consider what God's name really is. You might call it God's autograph, if you will. The term comes from two Greek words, which means self-writing or self-revelation. And the name of God stands for his being. And when we know someone by name, we know them intimately. And if it happens to be an important person, we consider it a great privilege that we might know him. And so too, it is a privilege to know God by name. He gave us his name in order that we might know him, that we might love him, that we might serve him, and ultimately live with him. It is a great condescending of his love to stoop down to us, to give us the gift that we might rightly know his name. Think now of the person you love most of all and consider and consider how would you feel if their name was slandered in your presence would you stand idly by if someone slandered your wife or your husband or someone you someone you truly loved would you remain silent but something else here we need to make a necessary and legitimate distinction between cursing and swearing meaning then using God's name in vain and or simply using bad language. It's a necessary distinction. The two are not the same sin, and yet, and yet, and yet, there is a very close relationship between the two. Follow this with me. You see, good language begins with respect for God's name. 
God insists that we use a language that respects his name. He requires of us the use of a holy language, a language that is holy and proper. In our speaking, in our language, we demonstrate our wealth or our poverty of spirit. Most of our fellow citizens in this world are extremely poor in their spiritual life, and their language shows that spirit. And what we need to understand is that the root of that terrible abuse of God's name in our society can be directly traced back to an absence of a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. All of this cursing and swearing in the world is simply symptomatic of a lack of faith in the world. For the world, God is not the loving God of the covenant. He is meaningless to them, and his name is simply something they use to add color or emphasis to their manner of speech, giving their words more effect, if you will. His name is not known among men, although it is frequently on their lips. If only they knew the God they use, if they only knew the God they use to curse others, their language would immediately change. They do not know him, and they use his name to curse out of ignorance. But even that ignorance of the unbeliever will not excuse him. Remember the scripture passage we read as our text. The young man was not of the camp. He was a foreigner, and yet God's sentence was death. And that is, if that is so for the unbeliever, how much more serious than for a Christian to allow such profanity in their surroundings, much more to bring it into their own home under the disguise of harmless entertainment. People God, it's not without reason that the Lord God adds the words, I will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. God takes that sin so seriously and he makes it ever so clear that the sin will not be excused. Is there a sin more serious than taking the Lord's name in vain? Yes, there is. You see, a man can repent of his profaning of God's name, and such a man will be forgiven. But an even more serious sin, and a sin that will not be forgiven, is a refusal to believe in that name for eternal salvation. How can anyone be saved if they reject the only name under heaven and on earth whereby men and women can be saved? It cannot be. Those who refuse to honor the name of God and his Christ will not taste of God's mercy in Christ if they die impenitent. Think now of the many, many, many times you and I when I point a finger at you, I point three back at myself. The times that you and I have profaned the name of the Lord. Oh, not in cursing, I hope. But how often have we not used his name without giving him the glory, the reverence, and the honor that that name was due? Think with me, a small little example. How often has it not happened in your home as it has happened in mine that we bow our heads and we give God thanks at the table after a meal. And after dad or mom says amen, the family becomes involved in a conversation, a discussion, and after a few minutes, someone will say, did, did we pray yet because I need to leave? Only a couple of minutes, and already we've forgotten that we have just been in the very presence of God. 
Have we then truly used his name aright? Or how many times have we not gone through all of the motions in a worship service, but never really engaged our hearts in authentic worship? Maybe our mind was totally someplace else. Maybe we were involved in reading our phone or a book or whatever the case may be. Have we then honored the name of the Lord? Have we then not profaned the name of him whom we claim to have worshipped? You can multiply that example for yourselves a hundred times over. But my dear people of God, from that horrible sin, from that great corruption that has captivated the hearts of most men and women, even children in our culture, we as God's people, we have been delivered by the marvelous power of the grace of God. We now stand on Mount Zion. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ spilled on the earth with us. We have been delivered from that terrible bondage that causes men and women to defiantly and carelessly take God's name on their lips in a profane way. No, we do not follow the world in this bash fashion, do we? No, we follow our Lord Jesus Christ taking God's name on our lips only with holy reverence and pleading to God that his name may be made hallowed, may be hallowed by us. Hallowed be thy name. In that renewed spirit, God's people have come to love and reverence the holy name of the Holy One of Israel. With respect to this third commandment, God's people are acutely aware that even as born-again Christians, they have as yet only small beginnings of that perfection that is required. And yet, and yet each day again, they turn to God's holy law and ask, O oh Lord, what would you have me do? And the answer then comes, you shall use my name always and only with fear and awesome reverence. That implies that each time we use the name of the Lord, we shall do so in the conscious awareness that we stand in the presence of an awesome, holy, divine, and unique God who is so awesome, so majestic, so almighty, so holy that no sin can ever stand in his presence. Mighty people of God, learn to take the confession of Isaiah upon your lips when he cried, Woe is me! I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah was so struck by the awesome holiness of God that when he examined himself in that context, he felt condemned because of his own profanity. He hardly dared to stand in the presence of God. Congregation strive then to be filled with a sense of his glorious holiness so that we shall at all times in our speech, in our prayers, in our worship, we will always and only use that adorable name only in a way that ascribes to him reverence, awe, majesty, and glory. Is that possible? Yes but only through the motivating principle of God's grace in our hearts. The true child of God turns to this third commandment in prayer. And with the psalmist says, O oh God, 
Search me and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way within me and then lead me in the way everlasting. So know the jingle of my youth has proved to be a lie. The world is not getting better and better. The opposite is true. However, as children of the light, called to shine as lights in a dark world, we can go to Christ. We can seek and we can find in him the grace to honor his name with our hearts, with our lips, resting in the assurance that his blood cleanses us from all iniquity, even from that heinous and grievous sin of the misuse of his name from our lips and from our hearts. Amen. Shall we